Hello, and welcome to Implied Powers. I'm your host, Patrick O'Connor. Implied Powers is a podcast that focuses on national security and foreign policy. We thank you for listening. Hello, listeners. It's Patrick O'Connor here, and I am joined by my co-host, Kevin O'Connor. Today, we are excited to announce our very special guest, one who has been a mentor of mine over the past year, Dr. John Beeler. Welcome to the show, Dr. Beeler. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here chatting with you today. Dr. Beeler is the Intelligence Community's Director of Science and Technology. Dr. Beeler, could you give the listeners some insight into your background and how it applies to your current position at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence? Yeah, definitely. Um, So maybe I'll start out saying a little bit about what the job is and then how I fell into that a little bit and how my background fed into my current position. So the job that I have at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence is to make sure that the intelligence community, science and technology enterprise is strategically aligned to the broader goals of the U.S. national security community and the U.S. government writ large. So the point of that is that for folks that aren't familiar, the IC is a really federated enterprise. So it's made up of 18 distinct agencies or elements that are oftentimes in different cabinet level uh, departments, right? So a bunch of the IC elements are within the Department of Defense, some are within Treasury or Department of Energy and so on and so forth. So again, it's a very large federated enterprise. So our job is to make sure that as we invest the next marginal dollar towards IC S&T capabilities, that next marginal dollar makes sense against our strategic goals. So that's the kind of broad overarching goal. And there's a lot of things that fall in underneath that, but that's the crux of the role at ODNI for the director of S&T. So to that point, a little bit about my background. Um, prior to being in the seat that I'm in now as the director of S&T, I was a program manager at IARPA, which is the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity for folks that are familiar with DARPA, the defense version of IARPA, um, it's, it's an analog, right? So it's the basic R&D wing of the intelligence community. So there ran a couple programs on machine learning, uh, forecasting, deep learning, and neural nets and human language technology and things like that, uh, which was a really great experience and being able to really push forward the state of the art in uh, machine learning and human language technology. Prior to that was a machine learning researcher at Johns Hopkins University. And before that was a data scientist out in industry. Uh, But the kind of twist to all this is that uh, my formal training is as a political scientist. Uh, My background is in quantitative social science. So that's what my doctorate's in. Uh, So it's always a fun conversation to explain how a political scientist became the director of S&T for the intelligence community. And I think there's uh, some interesting aspects of that. So again, the kind of quantitative aspects of the social sciences, uh, the understanding of human behavior and some of the ways that things interact uh, is very novel and very useful for this kind of diffuse and ill-defined mission that the IC has sometimes, right? Because we're, we're really looking at behavior of nations, behavior of states, behaviors, or behaviors of actors. So between the quantitative side, the machine learning side and the kind of human behavior side, have found that super useful in my current role to be as effective as possible and making sure, again, that as we're developing capabilities for an ICS&T enterprise, that things are strategically aligned. So that's the that's a quick breakdown of where I came from and kind of the job uh, and, you know, happy to pull the thread on any of that. That's a fascinating background to be thinking about these kinds of issues from. Uh, 
And it must be rewarding too, coming from a more theoretical training to get to see uh, how these are implemented and to get to kind of move the needle on uh, competitiveness in this way. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about the sense of mission, which is no doubt an attraction for a lot of you and your colleagues? Yeah, definitely. So the the fundamental job of the intelligence community is to provide actionable intelligence to policymakers within a relevant time span. And that relevant time span does a lot of work in that sentence, because if we find something out two or three weeks after something happened, that, of course, doesn't mean anything. So it has to be on time to inform policymaker decisions. So from an S&T standpoint, what we have to do is make sure that we have the technology to enable that intelligence advantage, to enable that strategic surprise. So that's really what we're going after uh, here within the ICS&T enterprise is making sure we have the capabilities to do that, which means that we have to be on the bleeding edge of nearly everything because it's surprise, right? That's what I was talking about earlier is we're trying to enable that surprise. And surprise often is not associated with you know technology that's two or three decades old. It's being on the bleeding edge or the application of technology in a newer novel way that's a little bit unexpected. You talked about competitiveness. And so if you're if you're plugged into any of the conversations happening around national security, the Biden administration's priorities and things like that, you know, strategic competition is all over the discourse, right? And so really the crux of that is for near-peer adversaries like China or Russia, we are very good. As a US intelligence community, as a national security community, we are very, very good at what we do, especially in the technological domain. But the strategic competition framing really means that we have to be better than we've ever been before. And we have to continue to drive things forward because the difference between, uh, and from my view, the difference between something like a counterterrorism mission or other kind of rogue state type things and uh, strategic competition with near peers is technological capabilities, right? So large peer adversaries have capabilities that other actors don't. And that's what we really have to align ourselves against. So whenever I was talking at the jump about aligning resources strategically, that's really what we're focused on is making sure within this framing of strategic competition that we have the technologies needed to enable that strategic surprise. So concerning competitiveness, is America's technological competitiveness measured against our ambitions or our adversaries' capabilities? Great question. And as with all great questions, uh, the answer is complicated, right? Uh, So it's probably a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Um, So obviously we have a pacing threat, right? So we, to this point about capabilities of near-peer adversaries, we kind of know what our uh, competitors are getting after. So we need to make sure that we keep that in mind. But really, I view ourselves as running the race against ourselves um, because we don't want to stay lockstep uh, necessarily in what strategic uh, adversaries are doing. We want to make sure that we're developing the capabilities that we think we need. Another point to pull the thread on there is uh, you know, the nature of technology and the way things are moving right now. So technology is moving more quickly than it ever has before, uh, using things like machine learning as an example, a quote unquote generation of tech in machine learning is something like six months. Uh, so you're, if you're looking at a couple of years, which is a pretty quick uh, time frame in the realm of the U.S. government, you're several generations behind the latest cutting edge. And we're seeing a convergence of various technologies come together. So the convergence of bio and AI, for example, to accelerate some of these other disciplines that we hadn't thought about um, in terms of very, very quick turnover cycles. And as part of that, there's this democratization of tech. 
So capabilities that used to be the purview of nation states or even very large nation states like the U.S. are now pushed out and democratized. You can see this in some of the stuff like um, uh, commercial satellite imagery and things like that. So to your point, um, like where does the IC stand and how, how does it relate to our adversaries? And I'll also add to the kind of broader you know, global tech ecosystem, uh, really focused on what we see as our key competencies and the things that we really need to be leaders in and doubling or tripling down on those areas and then making sure that we understand the broader landscape as well and keeping our eyes on that, but really focusing on the areas that we think are critical and unique value add propositions for the IC S&T enterprise. Absolutely. So when thinking about these emerging technologies, how how competitive is the United States specifically in technologies such as AI, quantum, and nanotechnology? And relatively speaking, how close behind is the competition in those technologies? So uh, at the kind of nation level, I think the U.S. is highly competitive across all of those technologies and is a rec- the recognized global leader in things like AI and quantum, right? Uh, the question becomes where where our adversaries are um, in relation to that. And I think we have a pretty good leg up on our adversaries. And I think the kind of nature of our system, uh, the innovation, innovation ecosystem that we have and things like that really contributes to us being able to run faster. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of reporting in the press about the size and nature of the investments that uh, other states are making, particularly China. Um, and while we need to, again, keep our eyes on that, the answer to the problem isn't just pouring more money after it, right? So again, the kind of ecosystems that we have are very hard to replicate, and that really enables the intellectual diversity, um, the variety of approaches, and again, this this acceleration of innovation that I think is very, very hard for other places to duplicate. So because of that, I think we're the leader in a lot of these technology areas, and I think it's a, a lead that will be very hard to close. Obviously, that doesn't mean we can rest on our laurels and not uh, keep running the race, but I'm pretty comfortable with where we are as a technology leader uh, as the United States and particularly in the IC and the national security community. Again, we are very focused on the areas that we think are crucial and making sure that we maintain our strategic lead in those areas. So so when thinking about um, these capabilities, what contributes to the narrowing of this capability gap? between the United States and countries like Russia and China. I know you previously mentioned the democratization of technology. Could you further go into kind of where these other countries, how they're developing um, and what, uh, what means they, they, they take to achieve the, uh, these development goals? Yeah. So there's a lot of aspects um, and just to pull the thread on the democratization of tech a little bit more. So again, um, from an AI standpoint, anyone can download code, right? Um, and anyone can read a research paper from a machine learning conference. So it's 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 very widely diffuse and very widespread. But then using an area like bio, right? So a lot of the biotech things now that used to take large wet labs or something like that, or you know, like very large scale resources, you can do in tabletop applications. Uh, again, the cost of satellites has gone way down. The cost of uh, batteries has gone way down. So a lot of these aspects that used to be very, very heavy lifts from a resource standpoint are now much more accessible to a wide range of audiences. Um, 
so that's one aspect uh going again to uh uh you know you were talking about china um just the amount of resources that they're able to pour against a problem both uh financial and uh kind of human capital resources i said previously that i think that's not necessarily the answer to all problems is pouring more resources after it but it is something that we as the united states aren't particularly uh uh situated to do right we can't pour infinite cash against a problem uh and our adversaries can so we we have to keep track of that and make sure that we're uh you know tracking those investments and understanding where we need to make sure that we're not falling behind uh but that's one of the main differences between the systems is this ability to pour resources and like very pointedly direct uh you know nation assets after a particular technological area one thing that interests me is the United States' world-class private sector ecosystem, along with its nonprofit and very strong academic institutions. Could you speak a little bit about how the intelligence community competes in recruiting top STEM talent against this private sector? Yeah, so another great question, and the STEM workforce is one of our primary areas of focus right now because you know, the first few questions that y'all had really focused on tech and the widgets, but it doesn't matter if we have the most whiz bang widgets, if we don't have the people to operate them or understand them. Uh, so we really have to focus on bolstering our STEM workforce. And for our new DNI, uh, DNI Haynes, it is one of her highest priority areas. It's one of the highest priority areas of the new administration. Uh, they released the memo on the national security workforce and really revitalizing that. So there's a lot of things in flight to make sure that we have the ability to really uh, robustify that STEM workforce. Um, so we know that we can't compete on salary, right? Uh, where the U.S. government will never be able to offer the sorts of compensation packages that the large tech companies can offer or the sorts of equity proposals that uh, startups can offer. Um, but what is really a new differentiator for the IC and the national security community is the mission, right? And I, I totally get it. Private companies have great missions as well, uh, but working in the intelligence community is a really eye-opening experience because everyone that comes in every day comes in because of the mission um, and really driving for that purpose of, you know, service to the nation uh, and making sure that we are the first line of defense uh, for the United States. Uh, and really in the IC, you can work on issues that will change the world and are of critical national security importance. And I, I think it's really hard to duplicate that um, anywhere else. So that's really what we're driving forward on is really uh, communicating that value proposition of national security work. And what I'll also say on top of that is there's always been this uh, historical model of kind of like the 30, 35 year career in the federal government, right? You come in when you're 22, 25, something like that. And then you work for 35 years and then you retire out of the government and really starting to pivot away from that because that isn't actually of value to the government or the employee either, right? So really trying to open up mechanisms for people to flow in and out of government. So you might come and work for us for five or six years and then you might go out into industry and work for five or six years and then you come back in and vice versa and just kind of continuing that cycle. Um, so that way the employee has a broader set of career experiences. They learn things when they're out in private industry, they get to get after a mission when they come work for us and learn some other unique technical skills that they can bring to their industry work. 
so that's the other aspect of this is it's not an all or nothing proposition. We're really trying to get better about making sure that people have these sorts of blended careers. It's reasonable to assume that anyone who has worked in national security understands the security clearance process and how it can take a long time. How does this perhaps dissuade a lot of top STEM talent from applying for jobs with the government, especially considering the short-term six-year work working stints and how they affect the um, clearance process? What does this effect have on the intelligence community? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, know that we're not always uh, the easiest place uh, to get in to work for. Um, and that's another area that we know we have challenges. Uh, a, a large tech company can put an offer on the table and you can be working there two weeks uh, from offer. Uh, whereas we put an offer on the table and we might come back to you 24 months later <laughs> um, and see if you're still ready to start. Uh, but the positive on that is that everyone in the IC understands, acknowledges, and completely agrees that that kind of clearance processing is an issue that needs to be addressed. And there are several efforts underway to rethink and optimize the process so that talent can get in more quickly. Uh, whether this is uh, bringing people on at a lower level of security clearance, whether this is uh, granting interim clearances to allow people to start working while they're waiting on their full up clearance, um, and then just kind of expediting the process overall. There's a lot of things in motion, but I also, you mentioned kind of shorter term stints. Uh, so another thing that we're working is a program called uh, public private talent exchange, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. So we're exchanging talent uh, with the private sector. So this might be, we send one of our people out for a short term stint, maybe six months or a year. Uh, and on the industry side, they can send someone to us for a short term stint again, six months or a year or something like that to again, really help foster this uh, flow of ideas and flow of talent, because as everyone knows, there, there isn't enough STEM talent generally. So rather than competing over the same talent, we figure out how we can tap into this wider uh, pool of folks and give them good experiences with us, give our folks good experience whenever they go out in industry. And I have to make this kind of an all or nothing proposition of, you know, well, do I run the hurdles to get into the intelligence community? Or if you're already in government service, hey, do I do I completely quit and go work in industry, right? So trying to figure out if there's something in the middle that we can help uh, develop to scratch the itch for a variety of audiences. Dr. Beeler, are there any pro current programs in place that emphasize this diversity in the workforce and the importance for specialized skill sharing across agencies? Yeah, so within government, there's a pretty good flow of talent. Um, and we have, uh, within the federal government cadre, uh, we have things called joint duty assignments. So this is where, uh, using the intelligence community as an example, you might be a person working up at the National Security Agency, and there's a job posting that you see that you really like at the Central Intelligence Agency. So you can do a joint duty over to CIA. Um, and work that job and get that experience uh, and then go back to your home agency. And that's similar to what I was talking about with PPTE. That really helps foster the flow of ideas and knowledge around the community. Um, because again, we don't uh, said a lot about kind of competing for technical talent. And so that's kind of the broader landscape, but especially we can't all have the, you know, 18 intelligence agencies competing over the same, even smaller pool of talent that is, you know, SCI cleared, uh, that wants to work for the government, 
so on and so forth. So really enabling that flow of technical talent around the agencies once someone is in is another pretty big priority for us. So for all the students out there like myself who are perhaps interested in pursuing a career in public service, what do you have to say uh, to what, what would you like them to, to go away with as they are considering careers in public service and perhaps national security um, as far as STEM related uh, careers? Yeah, I, I think what I'd say is that uh, while you're looking at the landscape of what you're able to do um, and acknowledge that you'll have a very, very long career, right? Because, you know, Patrick, like you said, if you're a student and you're 21, 22 years old, you're looking at probably 40 years of career, right? Maybe more depending on uh, how lifespans go over the next few decades, right? Well, that's a lot of work. Um so what I'd say is, you know, consider taking a turn in the federal government, taking a turn in the intelligence community, because you will get experiences that you can't replicate anywhere else. Um, and I think the skill set and the knowledge that uh, the intelligence community can impart on folks is unrivaled. Um, so our former principal deputy director of national intelligence, Sue Gordon, uh, would always say that the the intelligence community gives you more responsibility early in your career than nearly anywhere else. So you, you know, if you have a five-year turn in the community, you have had more than likely such a wide ranging set of experiences and responsibilities that again is, is unrivaled. Um, so I think really consider the, the value that a even five-year stint in the community could bring. And then additionally, uh, just really getting after uh, you know, a broad set of experiences in your academic career. So at the jump, we talked about how you know, I'm a machine learning researcher with a social science background and now working a wide portfolio of technology. And I think not narrowly focusing your either academic studies or your career and really getting a diverse set of experiences is crucial, right? Because I think that makes you a better scientist. I think that makes you a better researcher. And I think that makes you a better uh better able to kind of contribute to these national security topics if that's a thing that's of interest to you. So really pursuing a diverse set of experiences uh, is, is, I think, critical. Even if you're, you know, a computer science major and all you want to do is write code, having some broader background, I think, is very valuable and can even enhance your you know, day-to-day job of just slinging code from machine learning algorithms or something like that. So similarly to, to what we just spoke about with, with public-private partnerships and uh, relationships outside of the public sector. What role do academic institutions play in making the intelligence community more innovative and globally competitive? Yeah, so partnerships with academia is incredibly important. Um, so we have offices across the intelligence community whose sole mission is to maintain and build these relationships. Um, and again, I mentioned that I was a program manager at IARPA. Uh, the people that work on these programs are called performers. Um, and I think, I think the rough numbers that IARPA tends to cite is that of the performers, it's, you know, 30% big business, 30% small business and 30% academia. So I call that out to say that, uh, while there's a lot of talk about, you know, innovation happens at private companies. Now, uh, from my view within the U S academia is still really the driver of basic and fundamental advances that feed into the rest of our technology pipeline. So a tech company might take some of these things and polish them up and make them uh, into a usable product or something like that. But a lot of the fundamental work is still happening in academia. 
So because of that, we are really focused on uh, partnerships with academia to make sure that we're communicating our problems out because we have some super hard problems that are very interesting to academics, as well as bringing in uh, some of those relationships to the IC. And so one example of this that I'll give is we, we run the IC postdoctoral research program, uh, which is we fund postdoc researchers. So people who have finished their PhDs uh, are not yet kind of tenure track faculty members at an academic institution, but these are usually two or three year research appointments uh, to get after some particular research task. And we do that to foster these relationships with the postdocs themselves, with their academic advisors at whatever institution they've landed at, uh, as well as get some of these novel basic R&D advances. So again, just super crucial that we work with academia. And I think one of, one of the more fruitful avenues of engagement from my standpoint. You talk about a lot of the innovation that happens in academia and in industry, but how do you in government uh, source innovation and how do you plug into networks that are maybe not entrenched with the intelligence community and that sort of thing, but might have some kind of technology that's beneficial? Yeah. So I think really the key to that is focusing on the ecosystems, as you said. Um, so I we try to really focus on talking to academics, right? Because then the academics tend to know what sort of companies are working in this area, what other academics are working in this area. Uh, we have great partnerships with, uh, you know, investment firms, for instance, we have, we as a community have Incutel, which is the kind of venture capital strategic investor for the IC to invest in startups. So we partner very closely with them to make sure that we're understanding the kind of startup ecosystem uh, as well as well as our, again, kind of traditional large partners. So we try to get our hands around all of that, as well as understanding what our mission capability gaps are and what our needs in terms of science and technology are, and then communicating those out. Because we don't necessarily want to presuppose the answer to any technical question. Instead, we want to say, here's what we need. How do we communicate with academia, industry, so on and so forth, to really close those technology gaps? Um, so I think par partnerships is again, the key to that. And, you know, pre pre COVID, we still, uh, of course, interact with folks, uh, during COVID era, but pre COVID, uh, myself and a lot of my team, a lot of our time was spent, uh, kind of on the road, on the road show, interacting with a lot of these places, uh, to make sure that we have a good handle on, uh, where the technology landscape is right now, where these ecosystems exist, uh, and making sure that we're efficiently bringing that in to ICS and T capabilities. Recently, the vulnerabilities and challenges of various emergent, emerging technologies seem to dominate dialogue surrounding technologies such as AI, biotech, machine learning, and 5G. Of these emerging technologies, which are you most enthusiastic about? And are there any that keep you up at night with concern as we enter uh, into the era of great power competition with near peer rivals? Uh, well, Patrick, there's a lot of stuff that keeps me up at night. Uh, but to kind of focus on the more hopeful aspect first, um, I would say it's less about any one technology for me and more on the convergence of various technologies. And I touched on this a little bit already, but you know, the convergence of AI and bio, like I already talked about. So, you know, uh, shrinking the search space uh, for new synthetic proteins, for new engineered organisms, things like that, right? So things that used to have to be the result of trial and error 
um, and kind of bespoke knowledge in the head of a researcher. Now we can search over that space using uh, machine learning algorithms. Again, the intersection of machine learning and uh, you know design of antennas or something like that. So using reinforcement learning to design a new antenna uh, that no human might have designed, but is more efficient and more performant. So as I'm saying all that, obviously machine learning and artificial intelligence is the thing that undergirds all that. But really, it's the convergence of various fields, um, both on the research side and on the engineering side, and the ability to do things that we kind of never thought of before. So that's what I'm most excited about is figuring out how to apply some of these technologies across domains in ways that hasn't happened before, which actually gets to uh, the crux of what keeps me up at night, which is also the convergence, right? So uh, to this democratization point, uh, I made earlier in the speed of tech development. Uh, our job, again, is to surface these things to policymakers uh, in an actual time frame, and everything's moving much quicker than really we're traditionally used to dealing with, right? So if things are popping in six months, that that is very fast uh, for us to get our hands around. Um, and these sort of emergent properties of, you know, maybe there's a new engineered protein that we don't really understand, and it happened in six months because you know, of the convergence of AI and bio. Um, and that's not necessarily something that will pop for us that we need to understand that. So those kind of emergent complex uh, characteristics of these systems is, you know, th it's the double-edged sword of very promising for us and our own capability development, but opens up a whole threat space that we haven't traditionally had to deal with. One of the things I think is really interesting is that we all of these new technologies that are kind of at our fingertips and on the horizon, AI, you know, uh, the benefits of big data, uh, we have all of these powerful tools at our fingertips. Uh, and yet we also still have uh, very much kind of a 20th century definition of what our privacy rights are. How do we navigate that when we talk about what kind of uh, professional norms, what kind of civic norms should kind of guide our policies, our programs, our deployment of technologies in these spaces? Yeah, no, very important question um, and very crucial to all the work that we're doing in this space. Um, what I'll say a little bit before diving into kind of how we within the ODNI and the intelligence community think about this, um, I will say on these kind of, you know, uh, you know, generalized artificial intelligence and the end of the world and Terminator and everything like that. Um, as a, someone who did kind of hands-on keyboard work and research with machine learning and deployed some production systems out, um, uh, <laughs> I was always uh, very excited when something worked, period. Um, so that, that was always <laughs> the big hurdle. Uh, so I'm, I remain a little skeptical on the fears of kind of, you know, Terminator robots destroying things. Uh, when we were always very excited when we could spot, you know, dog versus cat, basically. Um, so I'll say that at the top. But with that out of the way, uh, these technologies are immensely powerful um, and they do open up a wide range of capability that we didn't have before. Um, so I, I think it's very fair of the American public to ask these questions and uh, not just fair, but crucial. Right. Because we we in the intelligence community work on behalf of the American people. So we want to make sure that everything that we're doing is aligned with the values of America. Um, so to that point, last year, the ODNI published the principles of artificial intelligence ethics 
for the IC, and those are available on our website at dni.gov. Um, and I encourage everyone to go take a look at those along with our AI ethics framework that really articulates uh, at a pretty detailed level how we'll consider uh, the deployment of artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, to intelligence community problems. And the other thing that I'll say on that is everyone within the intelligence community uh, is very focused on uh, maintaining civil liberties and privacy and respecting the laws of the United States, right? So one thing that I say whenever people ask, you know, how will you not, how will you make sure that you don't use machine learning to, you know, violate uh, privacy? You know, we're already bound by a wide range of oversight frameworks and laws that tell us what we can and can't do. So really the the problem for us here is to make sure that as we develop these new systems and these new machine learning systems, that they comport with those laws and rules. So we already know what the framework looks like for us. It's just how does this new piece of technology fit into that? And how do we build that right and have things like traceability, have things like insight into why models made certain decisions um, so that we can report those up to policymakers. Um, but, you know, at, at core, we're, we're very focused on making sure that these uh technologies comport with the values of America and with the legal frameworks in which we operate. So it seems like it's almost impossible to separate the questions of technological capacity and technological development from the questions of strategy and ethics, separating the should we from the can we. As a senior official, what do you look for in people we entrust with managing these sensitive programs and initiatives? Yeah, so this this is a super critical issue um, and kind of expanding a little bit on the answer to the previous question. Um, I, I am always uh, very impressed with the kind of ethical integrity uh, and moral standards that everyone in the intelligence community has. Uh, so everyone takes this issue very seriously uh, and wants to make sure that we're, again, doing the right thing for the American people. Um, so we have to take risks uh, and we have to push the, the boundaries of technical capacity, uh, but at the same time, make sure that we're pausing and uh, understanding whether what we're doing is appropriate and whether it comports with the frameworks that we operate within. Um, and that's why we publish these AI ethics uh, documents up front uh, before you know these systems are really suffused throughout our enterprise to say, hey, before we get too far down this road, we want to make sure that we've taken stock of what of how we think these things need to operate. Um, and so a lot of time and effort went into those documents um, because we really wanted to get it right. Uh, and the, those will obviously be living documents as we learn things um, and make sure that we're updating them to reflect reality. Uh, but we, again, we're really focused on uh, making sure that everything we do comports with uh, the values of America. Um, you know, we're very focused on making sure that we don't infringe on civil liberties. Uh, and so, again, developing these uh, viewpoints and strategies early and then ensuring we remain on the right side of the line throughout execution is of utmost importance to us and is uh, top of mind for everyone working in these areas. Well, there's a lot to follow, and I'm excited to see what the future holds for both technology and national security. And with that, Dr. Beeler, thank you for your time and your willingness to participate in this very important discussion. And thank you to my co-host, Kevin O'Connor, uh, for help on this. Um, and we are just truly appreciative of, of your time and your public service um, to this country. Hey, no, uh, Patrick, Kevin, 
thanks a ton for having me on. Uh, really enjoy the opportunity to chat with y'all. Um, and yeah, no, fantastic conversation. And just really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Implied Powers. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes to come.